We begin with Pam Falk in New York City at the United Nations because we have a surprise visit from the president of Ukraine today, Vladimir Zelensky. And uh, Pam, I know this has to be a surprise for security reasons, but isn't it kind of dangerous for him to leave the country at this moment? Absolutely, Dave. This is the first trip out of the country since the war began last February, this past February and um, 10 months ago. And he's expected to meet with President Biden, the White House address Congress. But this is very dangerous for him. He did meet with President Biden here at the U.N. in 2021 in September, and he was supposed to come back. But it was just too dangerous. So it is a very fearless move for him to try to get to the United States. But, you know, it's a key time here. Right. And he's obviously coming to ask for more help. Uh, I know we've given one Patriot missile battery, which seems uh, sort of symbolic. But at the same time, we heard another warning from uh, Putin saying that if you start if you start providing defensive weapons and long range offensive weapons, this is just going to escalate. Yeah, it's it's ironic, needless to say, that that Putin's idea of starting this, what he called at the time, a special military operation was to prevent NATO expansion and the defense capabilities and offensive capabilities of Ukraine. Now Ukraine has much more defensive and offensive weapons. Uh, NATO has Ukraine's application and Finland and Sweden have decided to join NATO because of the Russia threat. So it's obviously opposite of what the Russians wanted from in the first place. But what we're seeing now is a lot of threats from Russia and the defense ministry saying they're going to boost their personnel. They don't have enough people to fight from 1 million to 1.5 million. So um, Russia has talked about talks, about peace talks, but their idea of peace talks is nothing close to what, what Zelensky wants, which is to get them out. So this, what you're talking about is a 1.85, almost $2 billion security assistance package that includes a Patriot missile battery that that Ukraine says it needs. And the Patriot is a surface-to-air guided missile system, and it can target aircraft, it can target cruise missiles, um, and shorter-range ballistic missiles. So they need it for their defense where they have Maybe 40, 30, 40 percent of all their electricity has been knocked out because the Russians have hit so many uh, civilian infrastructures. And, of course, we've seen the destruction in terms of civilian deaths. And if and and the purpose of knocking that out is to make winter as miserable as possible. So what happens in the worst case scenario where people, I guess, what start freezing to death does the world just yeah, and you can't you know it, it means a lot more david it also means water supply uh that's based on electric is not coming it's uh, clean water uh heat everything and the stores aren't uh, being um, provided with food so um we're back to supply chain problems around the world we're back to everything and the u.s has provided a great deal of assistance over a hundred billion dollars but Right now, the, what's in the package in Congress for this week's passage is $45 billion in military assistance 
for Ukraine. And as we all know, the leadership in the House is changing hands. There have been some comments by Republicans that it's not going to be uh, a blank check was the word. And so uh, this is a very vital time for Ukraine to be coming. And he's addressing a joint joint, uh, chamber of commerce, a joint address to Congress, meaning the House and the Senate. And um, he's trying to appeal to both parties to support this because what what happens your question is what happens people leave i mean if they can get to a border and you've already seen the largest refugee crisis in europe um, since world war ii cbs's pamela falk live from the u.n pam thanks very much absolutely we'll be watching this is seattle's morning news and here's Mickey Gomez to explain Elf on the Shelf. And I have to tell you up front, we never got in on the Elf on the Shelf tradition. So uh, start from the ground up and tell me why this became so stressful for children. <laughs> well, let me tell you, not only did it become stressful for children, it became stressful for parents as well. Elf on the Shelf started in 2005. Uh, it's a Christmas tradition. It talks about a special holiday uh, scout elf who was sent from the North Pole to encourage good behavior and to report back to Santa whether your child has been naughty or nice. And um, the only twist of this is that every day, every night, you have to change the position of the elf. You name your elf if you want to. And um, so when the kids go to sleep, um, your elf, ours was named Lolly, and Lolly would um, change positions. And unfortunately, sometimes we would drop the ball and we would forget to change lolly so lolly would be sitting in the exact same position from the night before and well during the pandemic this just became too much you know with all the stresses of life of the pandemic and then of the kids and then did we move did you move did you move Lolly? And, you know, uh, my wife would wake up in the middle of the night at three o'clock in the morning and say, oh, I forgot to move Lolly. Did you move Lolly? I did not move Lolly. And then, um, you know, we, like most parents, used our Elf on a Shelf Lolly as a punishment tool and come to find out, according to psychologists, that's no bueno. It's not yeah. a good idea to no. do that. Well, what made you think it would be? This, this is... Uh... Frankly, I will tell you, I always hated the song Santa Claus is Coming to Town for that very reason. <laughs> he sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good, for so be good for good. It's like the, you know, FBI surveillance. A little creepy, right? Yes. The whole thing with coal in the stocking, too. I, I hate that tradition. You, you should find better ways to get your kids to uh, uh, behave than, than threatening them with the, with the destruction of their Christmas <laughs> dreams. That just seems to be well, going overboard. <laughs> I'm feeling so, I'm feeling parental guilt right now. Way to just really stick it to me. Sorry. <laughs> well, Elf on a Shelf, according to psychologists, is actually becoming a little too stressful for kids because we fell prey to it. We would say, oh, you know, Lolly's going to you know, go back to the North Pole tonight and um, she's going to give a really bad report to Santa if you don't start acting good. You know, mm -hmm. of course, I'm sure we used harsher words than that. And our children would just collapse and go, no, Lolly, please. Please don't. We'll be good. And then, of course, once I read the study on Yahoo News, that was that was really horrible of us. We were we were 
bad parent. Um, last year, I will say, we retired Elf on a Shelf. You did. After we forgot to move it for a couple of days. <laughs> and our kids, we finally told our kids that the magic of Christmas and the magic of Santa was actually us. Yes. And um, they, they took a hard hit. It was a hard hit for them. But what ended up happening is that when the pandemic started, we did have a, kind of a kind of a fun thing. When Lolly came from the North Pole to the house for the holidays, we had to put her in a two week quarantine because of COVID-19. I see. Very, very, yeah. very clever. <laughs> nice save there. <laughs> yes, thank you. Yeah. But um, but like so many parents, um, we dropped the ball and we unfortunately traumatized our kids with Santa's not going to bring you any presents if uh, you aren't good. Lolly's watching. And well, the psychologists say too stressful. Don't do it. It's not a good tactic. So just let it be the fun that it's supposed to be. And Dave, believe it or not, um, Elf on a Shelves have been... Over 19 million Elf on a Shelves have been sold since 2005 and in like 17 different countries. So this Elf on a Shelf is still taking off. Well, that's the whole thing. This is a made up tradition. This this was just a, a marketing thing, right? Right, because the elf comes with a book, and you read the story about how uh, about how the elf is made, and then how she or he is working for Santa, and then and how yeah. you know the elf is going to stay in the house for a couple of days, and she's going to be watching you, and she's going to be reporting back to Santa. Yes, it needs to be retitled "How to Traumatize Your Kids During the Holiday Season." <laughs> I agree. Thank you. I'm so glad we're beyond <laughs> Elf on a Shelf years. Yeah. Mickey Gomez, thank you, Mickey. You're very welcome. Happy holidays. This is Seattle's Morning News. Let's talk about depression, which seems to be a big problem during this holiday season. David Rudd, and, and every holiday season for that matter, David Rudd is an Army veteran. He has dedicated himself to suicide prevention. And, and tell us about the American Legion's Be the One campaign, David. Yeah, absolutely. The uh, Be the One campaign is a suicide prevention uh, campaign that really is targeted to a couple of things. Uh, one, reducing stigma uh, around veterans seeking help and around the issue uh, of suicide risk. Uh, and two, uh, around helping people uh, become more comfortable with responding. Uh, when somebody reaches out and asks for help, helping people become more comfortable with the idea of responding, having a conversation, and offering assistance and really overcoming the myth that somehow you can make it worse. Uh, you, you can't make it worse. It, it, when you express caring and concern, that only helps. So g- give us an example of how depression manifests itself and how you start that conversation. You know, it's interesting uh, around the issue of just having a conversation about how somebody is doing. If you think about uh, maybe the easiest way to think about it is in flu season. We're in the middle of flu season now and still having problems with COVID. Uh, When somebody coughs, we ask them how they're feeling. We ask them how they're doing. Uh, When you notice that somebody is struggling emotionally, if they're having sleep problems, they seem irritated, detached, depressed, sad, simply asking how they're feeling. Uh, just ask them how they're doing, uh, just like we do when somebody's struggling physically. And, and that conversation can sometimes lead to people revealing uh, thoughts that are that are more significant, maybe thoughts about life not uh, being worth living, uh, feelings of hopelessness, or sometimes people might actually voice thoughts about suicide. 
And if that's the case, just having a conversation with them, allowing them to air their feelings, uh, and then taking steps to get them professional assistance that they might need. And how do you make that transition from initiating a conversation to finally saying, I think you need help. I'm going to call someone. And the reaction is, oh, come on, you know, you know, don't don't be ridiculous. I, I, I don't want to put anybody to that trouble. How do you navigate that? You know, I think that's a that's a great question and, and really at the heart of the issue. Uh, one, I think recognizing that stigma is one of the most significant barriers to people seeking help, uh, allowing somebody to talk about, uh, you know, their hesitation to pursue help, their hesitation to ask for professional assistance, um, and then really encouraging people that uh, it's readily available for them, but most importantly, that it actually works. Uh, professional assistance and, and professional care for emotional uh, struggles and emotional challenges makes an enormous difference. Uh, it's overwhelmingly helpful. Uh, and then helping somebody actually reach out, whether it's a, ro- a local resource, if it's a veteran or an active duty military member, uh, they can always reach out to the VA. But reminding people that they can simply have an anonymous conversation through 988. That's the national helpline. That national helpline is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Uh, and if it's a veteran, they can push one when they dial the line and they'll get to talk to a veteran. They'll get to talk with somebody that is familiar with the unique challenges of military service. We're hearing from David Rudd, director of the Rudd Institute for Veteran and Military Suicide Prevention. Tell me your own story, David. Why did you decide to dedicate your life to this? Well, I tell you, I served uh, in the Army during the Gulf War, and and I'm a clinical psychologist by training, and uh, saw the challenge back then. uh, And we've been doing work in this area uh, ever since. Uh, and it's important for people to recognize that the single greatest challenge today for not just active duty, but for veterans uh, in terms of health uh, is suicide. Uh, that is the single greatest challenge that they face today. Uh, and it's important for us to get the word out uh, to really overcome the issue of stigma and to help people get more comfortable with having a conversation uh, and responding when somebody uh, when somebody asks for help. Yeah, I think you'll agree that things have certainly changed since the days when this subject would never come up on the on the radio at all. Uh, now we talk about it pretty much every year. Um, it, has the Army been able to do anything to prevent these these feelings? Since it seems to be a particular problem for veterans, has the Army changed the way that uh, it manages this problem? You know, the Army is working hard, uh, I think, to implement policies and changes that make a difference. Part of the challenge, though, is, uh, you know, the military, by definition, is a warrior culture. Uh, and warrior culture uh, is critical to, to an effective fighting force. But a part of what comes with that uh, is the idea that if you have emotional difficulty, if you have emotional challenges, that somehow that's a sign or a symptom of personal weakness or personal failure. Uh, and it's anything but that. Uh, it's simply uh, the reality of being human and, and the unique challenges of military life and military service. And I think that's one of the tough things for people to recognize and respond to. Yeah. I mean, I, I have never served in the military, but my understanding is that one of the things that you do, you have to go through in basic training is is learn how to, to turn off your feelings, right? Yeah, that's absolutely the case. And, and, and if you look over the last 20 years, 
uh, with war in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, you know, we've had people that have rotated and, and had multiple uh, deployments, uh, repeated deployments, repeated exposure uh, to combat uh, and to uh, combat zones. Uh, and the reality is the things that work uh, in that environment don't necessarily work well when you return home, when you try to reconnect with family, uh, with loved ones, with friends, with children, um, you know, turning off feelings to effectively deal with overwhelming stress is just not a good uh, response when you get back home around people that care about you. And do families get that kind of counseling themselves so that they, so that they know what to expect? You know, I, they do more now than ever. Uh, but like any, you know, I think like uh, just U.S. culture in general, uh, it's a topic that that most people are uncomfortable with. It's a, it's a conversation that most people uh, are uncomfortable to have, and and there's still this myth that if you talk about uh, these kind of feelings, if you voice. Uh, allow somebody to voice these kind of feelings. It can make the problem worse. And it couldn't be further from the truth. Um, actually, uh, we know definitively now that talking about these, allowing somebody to connect and, and simply expressing caring and concern, it makes a huge difference. And it increases the probability dramatically that somebody will pursue professional care when they need it. David Rudd, Army veteran and director of the Rudd Institute for Veteran and Military Suicide Prevention. David, thank you very much. Hey, my pleasure. Thank you. The secret will be revealed at last. This morning's commentary brought to you by Wafed Bank. It took four years of due process, but the House Ways and Means Committee has voted to release six years of Donald Trump's tax returns. I think this is actually doing him a favor because it helps him fulfill a promise he's been making since at least 2012 when he said he was looking forward to releasing his returns because they would show how successful he was at making a lot of money. I know Trump supporters will argue that this is highly hypocritical. Further evidence that the Democrats, for all their talk about privacy, are more than happy to violate the privacy of Donald Trump. But secretly, I think Republicans are as eager to see what's in those returns as the rest of us are. And while I won't deny the Trump haters are probably hoping his tax returns are finally what puts him in the slammer, that's not what I'm looking for. I'm not looking for punishment here. I'm looking for tax tips. Isn't that what most of you are looking for? And Trump may well go to jail for trying to overthrow the government, but that has nothing to do with this. This is about financial strategy. If he is half the financial genius he claims to be, I think we are all eager to see how he did it. And I am hoping that his tax strategy is, frankly, 100% legal, because if it is, I intend to use it. I keep hearing billionaires have these amazing strategies that only a select few understand. And I sense that with the release of Trump's returns, we ordinary middle-class minions could be on the cusp of getting the keys to the kingdom. The ultimate secret to the lucrative but legal tax strategies of the super-rich. The secret... Not just to making money, but to keeping what you make. And if, God forbid, it turns out his secret is nothing more than tax fraud or selling $99 photoshopped fungus-proof superhero snapshots, I will promptly scrub this commentary from the Cairo Radio website. Time for your daily dose of kindness brought to you by Heritage Homecraft. 
Eight-year-old Delilah Loya has spent half her short life battling cancer. She has stage four neuroblastoma, a type of cancer that forms from immature nerve cells. And she recently got to live out a dream with the help of the L.A. Rams. KTLA has her story. Earlier this month, Delilah got a break from her hospital bubble to live out a dream. On a count of three, you're going to take your blindfolds off. One, two, three. Social media influencer Isaiah Garza teamed up with the L.A. Rams to have Delilah be part of the cheer team for a weekend. She got a custom-made cheerleading outfit and even got to run out on the field. Words can't even describe the way we felt. Me and my husband, we both broke down. And to just see Delilah having fun is, it's a blessing. I got to say my pom-poms and they picked me up and... It was so cool and so exciting. One thing is for sure, this young cheerleader has a fighting spirit as she fights for her life. Don't ever give up. Say bye, Delilah. Bye. Delilah's family has set up a GoFundMe campaign to help with her hospital bills. Seattle's morning news and visiting us from the G. Nursing Show, which starts at 9. Here is G. Scott. You know, it occurs to me, G., that the, the main problem with uh, holiday travel is that too many of us have just moved away from home. And we should have just stayed there. And then getting together for the holidays would be as simple as, you know, taking a, a walk down the block. Traveling during the holidays is miserable. Sure. Um, seeing your loved ones, seeing your family. But is the ROI, is the return on an investment, is it always that great? How many times have you traveled back home to see your loved ones and you're like, Whew, I can't wait to leave. But right now, if you're traveling right now and you're going to SeaTac, you get there and you find out your, your, your flight's canceled, it's been delayed, it's just a nightmare. And so I hate to sound like a Scrooge on the topic of traveling during the holidays, but I hear more stories of, oh, it was so crowded. Oh, flight was canceled. Oh, flight was delayed. So when that happens, I'm like, hey, maybe, just maybe you get together as a family and be like, yo, you know what? Let's pick another time of the year. Yes. To maybe get together. Not saying that Christmas in holidays time isn't important, because it is. But the disappointment that you can be set up for, it ain't cool. There's probably somebody listening right now who's had their flight canceled. And no matter what, no matter what compensation you, you receive for a canceled flight, I mean, these are appointments to see loved ones. And, man, you can't get that back. Yeah. I mean, what we have typically done mm-hmm. is instead of going on Thanksgiving, yeah. we'd go the week after Thanksgiving. Instead of visiting on Christmas, we'll either go the week before or again the week after. But the, the problem is actually trying to uh, make the actual holiday because that seems to be what everybody right. wants to do. And, and frankly, um, I have as much fun visiting relatives on a normal day as I do on a holiday, so why not? Now, sure, Sully has been given all the travel advice, but... Here's my travel advice. If you want to get there before Christmas Eve and stuff, then you need to leave a week prior, right? 
You need to leave a week prior. Yeah. If Christmas Eve really doesn't matter that much to you, and it's just, ah, so, you know what? As long as I'm there for Christmas at some point, then fly on Christmas. Like, that I've is a, that. that's yep. a cool day to travel. Yep. Or on Thanksgiving. Yeah. Anytime that nobody else is flying. And that's uh, that's not too difficult. to. It's like, it's like doing the reverse when you go to the airport. Mm-hmm. Now they're telling you to uh, depart at arrivals and yeah. arrive at departures. And so maybe that's just the way to get through life. It's you doing know, the opposite of what they tell you to do. You know what? I've learned that um, that used to be a nice little deal that, that Sully gave us before. And I think the secret's out. Because more and more people are doing it now. Sully, I need you to stop telling folks that. You sound like Holly now. I'm giving away all of our I'm, secrets and all of our backdoor routes and things are getting around. Seriously. I know. I know. You, you, I, know. I want everybody to get my secrets. Remember remember when you, well, I don't know if you're a shopper like me, Dave and Sully, but I remember back in the day when you'd find that place, you'd find that little store where you got some nice clothes and they got, they got the good deals. You kept that a secret. Mm. I didn't tell anyone. I didn't want nobody to know because, man, I was getting, oh, man, where'd you get that from? Oh, I can't remember. And it's like my cologne. You ever notice when you guys ask me what, what cologne I wear, I'm like, oh, you know, I don't, I don't want to give my secrets. I'm selfish, Dave. Yeah. Is that okay uh, to admit that I'm selfish? I had, well, no, I, I, I understand that. I, I didn't think it, that included cologne, though. What's the big secret with the cologne? I mean, isn't isn't the, the the thing about cologne is it's different depending on what your natural body smell is anyway. I've actually so I've actually learned that as I got an older, and I was yeah. just about to. It's a very good point. It really is true. Uh, Dave, do you yes. do you wear cologne, sir? I wear a deodorant. I don't have a signature scent though. I, I wear something that um, prevents perspiration when I'm among others. Do so you- as not to make their day unpleasant. Well, since you brought up deodorant, and this is a segment that I get to ask you questions, <laughs> do you do you keep a stick? Do you keep a deodorant stick in the car for just in case purposes? Uh, no, I do keep a I, t- I keep a hairbrush in the car for just in case purposes, but I I, I do not have any Dave, deodorant. You gotta the keep that stick in the car. Really? As a matter of fact, last week we were doing the show. And during the first the nine o'clock hour, I said, whoa, 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 Ursula, I'll be right back. And during the break, I had to go out to the car. I had to make an emergency appointment with really? my deodorant stick. Yeah. Seriously? Hmm. Yeah. Well, you, maybe you maybe need to get a better deodorant, one that lasts all day. I don't know what happened. It, it wasn't both arms, though. It was just one. Mm-hmm. You, you know what I mean? But I'm just saying, I'm just giving you advice yeah. that you keep that stick in the car. Sully, you keep a deodorant stick in the car? No, because I use a really, really heavy one, odorless one that, that keeps me from sweating. Because I, I sweat pretty easy. So I yeah. Let me guess. You're, you look like an Old Spice kind of guy. No, no. It's, it, it, what I use is, it might even be a, a designed as a women's deodorant. I don't know, but it's it's strong, but it has no odor. Because I, yeah, I don't, I try not to smell like anything. And and Dave, you do you wear Brute? <laughs> no. Brute 33? No. Oh. Aqua Why Velva? What do you wear, Dave? <laughs> Why would I wear Brute 30? I'm not dating anymore. St- uh, Stetson? Stetson? Yeah. Don't they make hats? They make, they make they make they got into the uh, perfume business and stuff too. I, I believe whatever I've got is is made by Gillette. Oh, so, so you got a package deal? You got razors and deodorant? No, I don't have any Gillette razors, but I, I do have. Uh, when did Gillette get into the deodorant business, fam? 
I, I don't know. Like, as soon as people started buying stuff with Gillette stamped on it, I guess. I don't no. know. All right. It's not been a priority for me. I'm very sorry, but I will, I will double check. I'll, you know, just do the sniff, and if I need to keep a up my game, mm-hmm. then uh, I'll consider taking your advice. Degree, baby. Holla yep. at you. Degree? <laughs> All right. Whatever you say.